Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I'm your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. Hi, I'm Ethan Bartlett. (laughs) I wasn't reading a text message. (laughs) Hopefully this is more convincing than when I said that to every college professor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was like a poster or something in a classroom that I saw that teachers always know when you're looking at your phone because in a classroom, no one just looks down at their crotch and smiles. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I think right. I... Do you remember Do you remember the website uh, MLIA? No, it wasn't. No. It was Dear Blank, Please Blank. Um, that sounds familiar this was back when it was like social media was like the wild west and there weren't like mm-hmm. three monster behemoths that like t- sucked up all the bandwidth um right. and the thing a lot of us were obsessed with for a time was just called dear blank please blank, blank which was just like it was that format it was like dear someone please do x y and z sincerely this and i first saw that joke as one of those and it was like dear students i know when you're texting Sincerely, no one looks down at their crotch and smiles. Yes, I love it. <laughs> it but joke... we're not going to do that here. I was going to say, it was a joke I didn't fully understand until I did become a teacher. Sure. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Well, see, I didn't get a cell phone until like towards the end of my senior year of high school. And even then, it was one of those lame flip phone thingies that... Sure. I didn't use for texting. I didn't have a texting plan on it, which is maybe one of the most archaic phrases I've ever said. Uh, texting <laughs> plan. Uh, it, it cost me a nickel anytime someone sent me a text or anytime I sent someone a text. So I spent most of freshman year of college being really annoyed at all my friends who were texting me. <laughs> Making a poor college student poorer. Stop it. Don't worry. Uh, so. Just the other day, as a... 32-year-old man who sometimes works with, like, 16- and 18-year-olds. Um, my One of my favorite hobbies is, like, explaining how the world was when I was their age. <laughs> um, yes. I do, I do have, like, a cane that I get out uh, yes. for this. And, like, uh, you know, I, I, I lose a bunch of teeth and I'm hunched over all of a sudden. But literally the other day I was explaining T9 and... Um, like yeah, flip phones and like mm-hmm. te- you know the texties that was gonna ruin the English language, but it was just because <laughs> we didn't want to you know pay for a second text message because we did pay right. for them and not everyone had unlimited texting. Um, exactly. And then I you know watched Wheel of Fortune, took out my dentures, and went to sleep. So <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a great evening. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, what I had in college, because I, I think I actually also didn't have a cell phone till maybe my senior year of high school, or maybe even not till, I think I had one my senior year. Anyway, I had something called Track Phone. Ah, uh, yes. Which is a company that still exists in sort of the still way there. that mm-hmm. dinosaur bones still exist. <laughs> but I, I identified strongly when you said, like, getting mad at people who would text you because... The way track phone worked was just you bought these cards and they had like <laughs> 60 minutes or 120 texts. And then it was like once you'd used up those 120 texts, like 
you know, you, you had to scrape together the money to buy a new card, which again, as a poor college student, uh, like if I, if I had 0.5 minutes left on my current card, like you better be the girl I had a crush on, or I was deeply upset at you yep. for texting me. And that's why old grumpasauruses like you and me also get upset when people just text the letter K. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, do you know what I Total went through waste. for you to have a world like... where you could just text the letter K? That's right. It's like, um, you know, people who lived through the Depression watching people throw away tinfoil. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or pennies. Or pennies, <laughs> <laughs> except way way less actually important to existence <laughs> also if you oh, were the girl i had a crush on and that was my last text that was still very frustrating because now i had urgently had to buy a new phone card to continue right. flirting with you and it's like who has time for that lest she lose interest yeah which she would if i took more than half mm -hmm. an hour to buy that card loaded on my cell phone and then text her back using nine keys right and getting your way down to walmart to get that card in mankato i mean you were you're kind of pretty close there yeah like that timing work you had to you had to pretty much install the thing in the parking lot um i didn't leave the store thank you <laughs> i was like one of those people who buys like a, a scratch off lottery thing and just does it and throws it in the garbage on the way out yes uh and then yeah and they're like i i also love boondock saying swinky face <laughs> great this great is great composition there ethan this is when you great can great. tell that this was an ethan fantasy because no girl texting me in 2007 liked boondock saints if she had i would wonder why you weren't married to her. exactly <laughs> oh. man that would have been a great transition to bring karen in to read the rules but we don't need rules. That's correct. Why don't we need rules, because Michael? This is this is not a regular episode. This is one of our our famous specials that famously make up about half of our episodes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in which we we don't talk about a, a single book, and we're not drinking a common scotch. Uh, instead, we have our own drinks of choice at our own desks as we record virtually. Uh, in our own separate rooms and talk about something else and but still so literature still literature because like right we only do one cool thing on this podcast and it's talk about literature right right and we'll get there you know we will. we're 10 minutes in it'll it'll come <laughs> <laughs> and yes this time the literature that we're going to be discussing is poetry specifically formal poetry poetry written in um formalized verse uh following a set pattern not free verse correct and we were, we were talking all clear we were talking before in the secret um uh i was gonna say patron only but we have no way of getting this even to patrons the before we started recording portion of the podcast um we were talking about definitions mm -hmm. right and how as far as we can tell, the the opposite or antonym of of formal poetry is free verse, um, hmm. and I I always want to call it informal poetry because I think formal poetry mm -hmm. has 
I guess borderline a double meaning or or a different different depth of meaning than you might expect when you hear the word formal in modern English. Um, sure. Because part of the usage of the word form formal there ha, is, is the use of the word form, as in there's a specific form for this poetry. Right. Um, and the form is, you know, whatever, you know, the ones you learn in, in high school, your uh, mm-hmm. sonnets, your villanelles. Um, mm-hmm. the, the real nerds uh, go to Sestinas. Um, mm-hmm. you know. Hashtag only real nerds. <laughs> uh you know the like the the all those all those great verse forms that have like as you said michael set rules specific rules uh that govern mm-hmm. not just like that, that govern like the shape of the poem ultimately um mm-hmm. i've heard i've heard professors say that like you can tell a sonnet because it's square um <laughs> because like the the strict dictations, at least like of a Shakespearean sonnet, have to do not just with like a rhyme scheme, but also a metrical scheme. So all your the verses metrics, are yep. pretty pretty similar length when you print them out on a page, and then because there's fourteen, you know, it, it like often ends up looking like a square. Obviously, depending on mm-hmm. font choice and and size and stuff, but right, twenty four point comic sans. <laughs> uh. Podcast update. Michael has been fired from the podcast <laughs> um, because there are some jokes you just don't make. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. I, only to annoy you. Only <laughs> to annoy you. Uh, and so uh, before we uh, talk about what we have brought here, Ethan, uh, what are you drinking? I am drinking something called a recipe I either discovered or rediscovered recently um that but it's super old i think it dates from the 1890s or so uh it's called a bermuda highball and so a highball is just classically a pretty simple cocktail where you have like two ounces of liquor and like maybe four-ish ounces of um like club soda right so it's just a way to like you get the taste of the liquor but you don't get as much of the burn um the Bermuda is sort of a specialized or specialty highball uh, that weirdly does not have rum in it. I always think it should have rum because it's called Bermuda. Yeah, it's Bermuda. Yeah, you have those Caribbean associations. But no, um, it ha- features cognac and gin um, hmm. as well as, I think the original recipe called for Lille Blanc. Um, I use something called Cachi Americano. Which are both very similar. They're both uh, like fortified white wines with quinine in them, so they're a little bit bitter. Um, so the recipe is just like one part of each of those, and then three parts soda water, and then it's just you just kind of build it over ice. Um, which sounds both simple and weird, and mm-hmm. it probably is both of those, but it's like weirdly delicious. Um, it sounds like it's pretty delicious yeah yeah like i didn't expect it i wasn't sure what to expect of it when i first tried it but i kind of got obsessed with it i've kind of been drinking a lot these last few weeks so that's what i'm on what are you drinking michael uh i am drinking not a cocktail but uh a drink that is actually partly your fault (laughs) um i am drinking a glass of amarula Ooh. 
Um, but it is Amarula Vanilla Spice. Oh, I wanted. I saw that in the store a few weeks ago, actually, and I've been wanting to try it. I have not done it yet. Yes. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's maybe not suited for this season exactly. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's perfect for December. Sure. That's what I'll say. It's great. It's still delicious, and that, like, surprising fruitiness that comes out uh of this creamy almost milky looking drink uh is awesome but that that vanilla and the ginger that's in there Ooh. makes it uh a little more appropriate for winter so why would you accuse me of a uh, of uh being at fault for you drinking because this? i had never heard of amarula until you brought me some me and my wife some as a housewarming gift oh did i do uh back in whatever month that was <laughs> um that was a while ago. Yeah, spring. But, yes. Ish. Yeah. Um, so I think this is about our third bottle <laughs> since then. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, Amarula yes. is nice. It's... We're, we're low-key obsessed. <laughs> it is It is a nice one to be obsessed with because it's, like, very kind of smooth and easy and also mm-hmm. relatively, it's almost more like drinking wine than drinking liquor. Yeah. It's a little bit eye-proof than that, but right. not too much. It's, it's like, if you're... In that mood where you don't know whether you want a glass of wine or a cocktail, you want Amarulo. That's, yeah, I like that. It's very well put. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So. And somehow we find ourselves in that mood a lot. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know why that would be. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> anyway. Um, so that's what we're drinking. And now uh, each of us has brought a poem for us to discuss so i want to introduce these poems and then i think i think we'll introduce both of the poems and give the listener a chance to read both of them they're both pretty short and then we'll come back and talk about them so and they're uh ethan I'll, yeah i was just gonna say they are short but michael and i sort of feel like oh. if we read them both out into the podcast it, it would take too much airtime that we would rather devote to things like remembering what cell phones were like in 2007 <laughs> so the important things yes. <laughs> uh yes so uh ethan what poem have you brought uh my poem is called if we must die by claude mckay um and mm-hmm. i'll say more about it you know as we go um but it is a fairly well-known poem at least in certain circles uh and it's freely available on poetry foundation i'll i will put links to all of these in the show notes but um yes yeah it's yeah and you can find all of these poems that we're we're reading here online yes um so yeah yeah so if we must must die by claude mckay correct uh and i have brought sestina of the tramp rail uh by rudyard kipling Talking about nerds. <laughs> there you go. I brought a Sestina. Oh, wait, is, so gentle. I didn't yeah. realize you had brought a Sestina when I said that hurtful thing. Oh, didn't you? Oh. Gentle listener, I absolutely did. <laughs> go read those poems. Read them back to back with no break in between. Out loud. Uh, out loud, and then come back, and we'll we'll talk about it. Go. And we're back. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, so uh, since I'm hosting this, I'm going to say that we'll talk about your poem first, Ethan. I really wasn't sure which way you were going to go on that one, but I'll... Uh... <laughs> I wanted to keep it mysterious. <laughs> you did. The final. You succeeded. Period in that sentence. <laughs> so, um, your poem, If We Must Die by Claude McKay. Yes. Can you give us just the briefest sto- sort of background on... The poet and yes. where it comes from. Um, and I guess the the very first thing I want to say, which I probably should have said in the introduction, but I forgot until just now, um, but it's relevant to to background, is that we, we probably should make a distinction between form and structure, um, which is one of those discussions that you have in either creative writing class or, you know, Lit 101 that everyone falls asleep during. Um, but the, to put it the briefest way possible, uh, form, like the analogy I always use form is, if you think of a painting, um, form is like the size of the painting, the type of paints that you use, even the frame that is around the painting. Whereas structure is like the layout of what the painting actually is. Or, or the content mm-hmm. of the painting. So structure might be if you're using rule of thirds, so your moon is in the you know upper upper right sort of third of the of the painting or other things like that. Um, that's that's going to be structure. But form is the thing that makes the painting like the type of painting it is to begin with, whether it's a miniature or a a vast you know right. uh, landscape or whatever it is. Um, so. And we're going to end up talking about both because the more granular you get, the more it's difficult to separate the two. Um, yeah. But I I thought that this poem was really interesting to bring when we're talking about form specifically because it's a Shakespearean sonnet that was written in 1919. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it... Shakespearean sonnets, of course, feel archaic to us today, but a hundred years ago, they felt almost equally archaic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, certainly in 1919, you're much closer to Alfred Lord Tennyson and, and um, you know, some of the other Victorian-era formalist poets than we are today, but still, like, the Shakespearean sonnet felt antiquated even then. Um, so it's interesting to me that Claude McKay, because of, and this is where I'm actually doing the thing you said, Michael, um, because of who he was as a person, it's fascinating that he chose this form um, to to mm-hmm. express his his thoughts in, that he thought this was the form that, you know, met his needs the best or whatever you want to say. Um, mm-hmm. Because Claude McKay is... Uh, sort of a leading figure in uh, what's come to be known as the Harlem Renaissance. Um, McKay was born in Jamaica, um, eventually wound up in New York City. Uh, There's actually a really fascinating article about this sonnet on Poetry Foundation that I'll probably link to that in the show notes as well, um, that talks about his biography, which I've just done a great disservice you know, to here, like there's, there's fascinating stuff there. Um, but so McKay, like I say, he was, he was a leading poet in the Harlem Renaissance, which again is interesting on a formal level because a lot of 
what you mm. think of from the Harlem Renaissance is going to be, you know, some of these guys who are really interested in like rhythm and, uh, um, oh, yeah. you know, the, the verse gets, uh, very free. Um, you think about like Paul Lawrence Dunbar and we wear the mask and some of those, like, they almost seem like proto beatnik style poems. Hmm. Um, and here we have, again, by one of the leading figures, we have like a Shakespearean sonnet. Um, mm-hmm. So again, that's just very interesting to me. Um, and, and so the the other thing, I guess, about Claude McKay that you need to know is he, so he moved to New York City, he got involved in sort of the literary scene, and then the summer of 1919 was called, by some people came to be called the Red Summer. There was a lot of, like, anti-black uh, rioting and... Um, just unrest and, you know, uh, much as there's, there's racism still alive in our society today, a hundred years ago, it was much more common for people to get, you know, lynched and, and other like extremely violent things that, that, you know, the, the black community was very poorly protected from if protected at all. Um, and so this, uh, this poem comes partly out of that uh that background um and you know the the first couple lines really just uh uh summarize that the the feeling the response there if we if we must die let it not be like hogs hunted and penned in an inglorious spot um right so and then you know that that spirit lives throughout the poem uh in you know the the defiance and the you know mm-hmm. you know you could potentially call it provocative if you didn't know the background and what it was what it was reacting to uh oh sure know, sentiments expressed throughout uh was that kind of the the answer you were looking for yes yes that uh, that hits where i was going with that, and I appreciate the way you described it too, because I was thinking as you were unfolding the background of this poem, a person could, if they knew nothing about it, get a couple of different impressions. If they just read the poem in a vacuum, say, and then heard the background, and I knew the background, I, I looked at it ahead of time, but if if they didn't know the background of it, as you're describing it, you say it's in 1919 a first thought might be oh it's a world war one poem and this is uh you know a war poem which it sort of is right actually <laughs> in the but, first time i i taught i've taught this poem a few times and the okay. first time i taught it i got it wrong because i don't know hmm. if i had read something or if i just leaped to conclusions myself but i taught it as a world war one poem uh, sure it coincides with the timeline well, yes. for it chronologically yeah. but it it is dealing with something different but i think that there's something there that makes it a more universal poem then or can which is something poetry can do in general is just grab onto a broader appeal and that comes through with this idea of war that is a universal experience at the time and reaches beyond that time too but it's 
war. It's fighting back. And I, my first impression after reading this poem for the first time was, I can't think of many poems that are manlier than this poem. <laughs> and it, it it struck struck me as uh, reminiscent a little bit of uh, Henry V. You're talking about Shakespeare, and this is a Shakespearean sonnet. Henry V is possibly one of Shakespeare's manliest plays and manliest protagonists uh, with uh, his, well, his whole um, St. Crispin's Day speech uh, and, you know, once more into the breach and all of that. Yeah. That's and, like, we could interrogate your definition of, echoed here. of manliness somewhat, but I, I think could. I agree with you. Yeah, I think I understand what you're going for there, and I think I do do tend to agree. Um, and yeah, and it's it's interesting on a lot of those levels. I think um, the and, and you're right about like there's multiple available interpretations of this. Like I looked at a couple articles um, in preparation for this, and everything I, I looked at w- did point out that. There's a vagueness, or a, if not a vagueness, a non-specificity. You'd have to know the context mm-hmm. to know the context. Um, and everyone seems to think that that's intentional. That like, like a lot sure. of great art, like perhaps McKay is reaching for, you know, a um, a universality, which I think you was a word you just used, but something beyond just the circumstances, because you know you could say. Mm-hmm if this sentiment is valid then it's going to be valid outside of the circumstances and if it's you know i don't know if you'd say if it's not then you don't want it but something something along those lines um yeah but the other the thing that's interesting however about the the non-specificity or the the vagueness or whatever you want to say there um has to do i and i think it has to do with the form partially um, and this was uh, specifically pointed out in um, it's uh, an article by Tanya Foster for uh, I found it on Poetry Foundation. Again, I'll link to it. Um, hmm. But Foster points out that uh, so there's this there's this um, I guess uh, non-specified we or non-specified like in group. If we must die. Um, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our cursed lot, if we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood, um, and then, you know, even a couple lines down from that, you have, oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe. Um, Mm -hmm. and, again, there's, again, this unspecified, like, first-person plural throughout the, the poem, um, and actually, in support of your last point, the the last couplet there, like men will face the murderous cowardly pack. So like, <laughs> it is right yes. there in the text. Um, yep. But so the the unspecified we, which you know textually you can read as a group of men, uh, in mm-hmm. Shakespeare and in most of the the poetic heritage um, that produced Shakespearean sonnets or or tangents upon Shakespearean sonnets, um, that group of men would be white. You'd be talking oh, sure. about white men, or if you had a first person, you know, an undefined first person singular narrator, a white man. 
Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that in the context, and if you know who the writer is, that presumably can't be the case or presumably isn't the case, but McKay leaves that out. He doesn't sort of uh, uh, mm-hmm. make that explicit on the page. Um uh foster at least argues is is quite significant and i think it's at the very least quite interesting um and like that's that's part of why i wanted to bring it to specifically when we were talking about form because it's a use of because i'm i'm the hidden agenda here is that i'm fascinated by form and structure like uh i sometimes have ideas for stories where it's like i want to write a story with this particular structure or even this particular arrangement of chapters or something um before i have an actual idea for a story uh and i i think about that Mm -hmm. in books i read too um but this is a really crystal clear example to me of the form itself separate from the the content but complementing the content but the form itself making a statement um like a, a black man in 1919 you know, in responding to the Red Summer by taking this this poetic ground that has been so claimed by a specific tradition of literature and um, using it to express to subvert or to uh, to answer you know certain things that that come out of that same culture um, is just endlessly mm-hmm. fascinating to me. It is. There are a couple of things I want to say about that. And I want to think about what they are (laughs) before I say them. Uh, One thing in particular that uh, occurs to me as you're talking about this, you didn't use the word appropriate, and I think that's appropriate. (laughs) Uh, But essentially it leads me to to this question that I don't want you to answer, so wait. Uh, What makes this poem a black poem and that's something that i think is a bad question to ask in some senses because what well what makes it a black poem is it's written by a black man but then we're talking about this universality to it that it's it's something that with the form itself causes that universality but also uses that tradition that is not typically a black tradition uh in order to, I, I don't want to say that it makes it relatable because if, if I'm putting myself in the mind of an early 20th century reader of this poem, say a white man reading this poem in the early 20th century, perhaps one who is not terribly uh, friendly towards the Harlem one, Renaissance. One or, Mr. Or... Uh, Babbitt of uh, Xeroxville. Sure. There you go. Uh, if if I'm Babbitt reading this poem, and I if I read it in a vacuum and didn't know who Claude McKay was, I might think, yes, the, the our, our warriors who are overseas fighting for freedom, great, I love it. But then, uh, as soon as I hear who wrote this poem, my reaction is going to be, possibly, I'm speculating here one of disgust or um general upset defensiveness at the very something defensiveness defensiveness yeah that this has been essentially appropriated right 
How dare uh, someone and, like this how, use Shakespeare's yes. uh, form or whatever? Right, and the fact that that system of reactions might occur in a person just lends. I don't. I don't know what I want to say. Like the first phrase that comes to mind is more validity, <laughs> but that's not exactly what I want to say here. Uh, it's it's part of how it works as a protest. Um, sure. Yeah. 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 It's a. Uh, you know. In a, it's it's both. I think this seems like tricky. Like, uh, oh, I'm trying to think. Either teleological or like epistemological ground yeah. to say. Almost the meaning of it depends on your reaction to it. Um, sure. <laughs> because if you have that reaction that I think it's pretty valid to say Babbitt probably would have had, um, then it's a protest yep. poem. Uh, if you sure. have the, a much more like sympathetic reaction, you know, then it's more like it's mm-hmm. a poem for you. Um, sure. And it, I, I don't like that I've said that. It's just like where the thought has led me. Sure. Well, I, that, and that sort of hits on this idea of multiple sides to any debate. And um, I'm probably quoting a movie when I say, you know, one one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. What um, movie is that? I don't know. It sounds really familiar. <laughs> I can't think of what movie that is. Uh, but that's that's essentially the idea here. If you're on his side, then it's it's maybe a protest poem against them, but it's, you know, my poem. But if you're not on his side, then it's a protest poem that needs to be put down. <laughs> or, or, it's a, or it's offensive or something else. Yeah, It's offensive, yeah. Um, right. And it's, it, it's something that it works so well in if we take the sense that it's a protest poem what makes it work so well as a protest poem is all of this us versus them language within it uh there that they uh it, um is does it say they anywhere in here it says foe the far numbered there yeah it, it's in there um that that pronoun of of their their thousand blows uh is is in there um versus us we you know, the, the first person plural versus the third person plural uh, is the the sense in all of this. And so that's where you get this this protest idea that exists and it demands that you fall on one side or the other, really, uh, as a reader of this. Uh, you you can either sympathize with the first person plural or you can turn it around and say that the first person plural doesn't have any right to say this against the third person plural you you have to essentially be on one side or the other linguistically i mean the other move that you can make is to just read it as being about whichever side you already think you're on um yeah mm-hmm. which is not necessarily different from the thing but, you said no and that's that's maybe what i want to boil that down to is that then the the position as it's placed here humanizes the first person plural side that the we which just that pronoun itself makes it easy to identify with is something that i should identify with as a reader of this poem either that or i 
throw it away. I do want to part, and this is a comment on what we've just said, as well as me going ahead and answering yeah. the question you told me not to answer, um, which is <laughs> which you knew I would do. You can you can do that now. <laughs> um, and it, I, I, in a sense, I'm still following your dictate because, uh, well, also still being annoying because I'm answering it with a question. Um, so when you say sure. what makes this a black poem, again with yeah. some of the subversion or the uh, uh, implied critique that the use of the form or the use of of the the uh, unde- unspecified we is doing mm-hmm. would lead you to say, well, what makes uh, sonnet name any number sonnet twenty nine? What makes that a white poem? Um, sure. and if you're not willing to answer both questions equally to me that almost mm-hmm. implies the answer um sure or in other words like the fact that you have to ask or that you might feel compelled to ask that question after learning the identity of the author speaks to what he part of what he's trying to do i think he's you know if hmm. in other words i think if poetry written by white people um can claim universality. Uh, I think the point mm-hmm. is that poetry written by black people should mm-hmm. also be able to claim universality. Yes. <laughs> and that's something that I think Claude McKay is doing masterfully here, that this is such a universal sentiment, while also when you understand where it came from, it depicts that so right. perfectly that it, that that's, that's the line um, that's so hard to draw if you want your poem to be universal, but also depict this very specific right. situation. That's a hard, hard thing to reconcile. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in a lot of cases, um, when you talk about the form to dictating some of the content, I don't know if you actually said that sequence of words, but I'm going to. I was going to say, not exactly, but don't, don't let that stop <laughs> not you. Not exactly. That's, that's something that's, that's really interesting, too, just in general, and I've thought a lot about that uh, also. Um, I've been looking a lot recently at uh, Psalm 119, uh, which is the longest psalm in the Bible. It's 176 verses, uh, eight verses for every letter in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 letters, uh, and each line... Uh, of those eight verses starts with that letter of the alphabet. So the first eight verses start with the Hebrew letter alpha, the next eight start with uh, the Hebrew letter bait, and so on and so forth, uh, all the way through in order. Now think about doing something like that in English. Uh, it's, it's an acrostic poem. We can do that in English with like one line. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a kindergarten exercise. It's something that you do with kids uh, to, to do that sort of thing. But then try conceptualizing doing something like that with eight lines per letter uh you start you can start off fine but then you get to <laughs> right. x <laughs> uh and, and what are you gonna do there? can you talk about well, xeroxes for like exactly exactly well and and there's something similar that happens in hebrew and that's with the letter vav um because there are exactly 10 words in ancient Hebrew that begin with the letter Vav. It's basically the Hebrew X in that sense. Uh, but one of those words is the most common word in the Hebrew language, uh, and that's the word for and. <laughs> and so what winds up happening is in that stanza with the letter Vav, every line begins with 
and, which is not something that's typical in poetry. You do that in, in a narrative form in Hebrew, that that's how they drive uh, the prose narrative. Uh, is, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. But to put that in poetry, it sounds clumsy. But the thing is, the poet used that form to dictate the contents so that that whole stanza is all about how my tongue is tripping over itself. And that's just something marvelous that, that happens out of that. And I think something similar is happening with using this Shakespearean sonnet here, that it does... For Well, in any form, you're going to be forced into a limitation. You're going to be forced into a box in some way with the word choices that you have available to you uh, with the the sequence of the words, because you've got this meter and rhyme that, that you have to fit everything into for this poem. So in that sense, it forces a prioritization. It forces you to triage your words a little bit. Um, which might be something that helps with that sense of universality here, that someone like me, a hundred years later, can read this poem and, and identify with it on some level now, uh, and identify it with, you know, poems from hundreds of years before that. I, another one that I thought of uh, while reading it was uh, the, the Charge of the Light Brigade. Uh, you know? Sure. Um it's just interesting you say that because, again, from uh, uh, I should just have just posted this article on Color of the Day, <laughs> but Foster's article, um, she mentions that the the iambic meter from a Shakespearean sonnet, yeah. which, having scanned it myself, McKay follows mm-hmm. pretty strictly, um, possibly more strictly in some cases than sure. Shakespeare did, uh, but that the there's sort of a drum beat that mm-hmm. like that like soft hard soft hard soft hard soft hard um and that following that while using a lot of this very militant combative language uh again lends itself to the to the content that it it uh that that rhythm sounds like almost like gunfire or like something something combative um in and of itself Mm -hmm. uh so which is you know is similar to sort of what you were saying i think in that like it's um you've you've sort of forced yourself into this box but then from having done that like something springs out of it that you wouldn't necessarily have thought of on your own or that would be harder to do out in outside Mm -hmm. of a formal um yeah yeah absolutely um yeah that's well, there's, there's a lot more I could say about this poem. I tried to restrict it to the things I found that were stru- formal, yeah. specifically, um, or at least structural. Uh, again, there, even even um, uh, Tanya Foster's article has a bunch more really yeah, interesting I'm gonna stuff. I'm going to have to so, read that. As I said, I'll post... Yeah, I'll post that in the... Uh, I'll send it to you, but I'll post that in the... Uh, show notes um and if if you're interested in this poem and want to know more like that's a great place to start awesome. i would say love it so that said michael i think you also have yep. a poem uh, i brought the sistina of the tramp royal uh by rudyard kipling rudyard kipling 
uh, of course, most famous for writing The Jungle Book. And uh, he does have, and I own a, a complete verse, a volume of, of complete verse uh, of his. And I, I didn't count how many poems are in here, but it's it's a lot. The, the book itself is almost 900 pages long. Um, so, yeah, he's got a lot of poetry. And, and he did put a lot of poetry into the Jungle Book uh, and just so stories and such, too. And some of those poems are found in this volume of his complete verse. Uh, he is pretty much a contemporary with Claude McKay. Uh, I think they, they at least have some crossover in years. Uh, he was born in 1865 and died in 1936. Uh, this Yeah, so direct contemporaries, probably. Yeah. I also, I also suspect Claude McKay would probably have some less than uh salutary things to say about <laughs> kipling i was, but, I was gonna say uh, yeah um, there, we don't have to get into that <laughs> no we don't have to we don't, we don't have to go into their their debate i i, I want to talk about this poem specifically though we'll we'll sit sit with that uh written in 1896 uh is when the sestina of the tramp royal uh was um was composed and it's a sestina uh which is as you say a nerdy form uh of i only poetry. say I only say that in the sense that, like, I, as, like, every school bully, I call things nerdy that intimidate me. Mm. Um, because I find, I've written villanelles, I've certainly written sonnets, I find I can't even comprehend what a Sistina is. Sure. Enough to, like, understand what's going on in one that I'm reading, um, <laughs> let alone to produce one of my own now that i may be exaggerating slightly there but sure m- more slightly than i'd like to okay <laughs> um well yeah it, and it is an intimidating form the the sistina is um can you just like define it briefly yes Maybe that's what you're already very briefly I'll, I'll get into what it is uh it's six stanzas of six lines each uh um and like sonnets, they can have a variety of meters uh, to them. Uh, I think, by and large, they wind up being iambic, but that's just because that's English because poetry. Because Shakespeare, <laughs> yeah, Shakespeare prejudiced us all towards iambic meter. Exactly, uh, but it doesn't have to be. In favor of iambic meter. Uh, it sure. doesn't have to be. Uh, and uh, it doesn't have to rhyme either. Some of them do. But what defines a sestina really is the words that end each line. Um, well, and I said six stanzas. There are actually seven, and I'll get to the seventh stanza in a minute. But each line, you when you write the first stanza, then the words that ended each stanza are going to be repeated at the end, or that ended each line are going to be repeated at the ends of each following line. I'm explaining this in extremely complicated form, but essentially you write the first stanza and then you start the next stanza ending the first line with the last word of the last line of the previous stanza. Let me see how complicated sure. I can explain this. Um, <laughs> so if you have the, the lines and going uh, with six lines, A, B, C, D, E, F, right? Uh, so that's how it ends. Then the next stanza is going to begin with F, but then it alternates. So it's last line first, then you go steps in. So it's going to be F, F is the first one, then A, 
is the second line, and then you go into E, so the one right before F, and then B, the one right after A, and then D, the one right before E, and C, the one right after B. Um, so that you um, repeat those words in that way. And then you do that same pattern through six stanzas. So then the next one, um, which the second one would end with C, so the third stanza begins with C, and then whatever F is what it started with. So you, you go in that pattern again, where it's the last line, first line, and then the second to last line, second line, third to last line, third line, um, using those words repeated over and over and over again. Um, the <laughs> this explanation gives me confidence that someone could understand this form. Yes, I, I, I understand the pattern. It's really hard to masterfully do because you are severely limited in your word choice then that those exact words need to be repeated. And that goes through six stanzas. And then the seventh stanza is only three lines long with those words repeated halfway um, into the, the um, in the line. So halfway through the first line is going to be the word that ended the first line of the sixth stanza. Uh, and then the at the end of that line is the fourth end word of the sixth stanza. So one, four, and then two, or here, I, I used letters previously. So A, D, B, E, C, F of the sixth stanza, but in half size <laughs> uh, repetition there. So you get this um, almost villanelle-ish um, ending. Um, is, is what you get with, with the sestina there. Um, what that winds up doing structurally with those repeated words is those six words form the theme of the poem because you're going to hear those words over and over and over again, especially what defines that theme is going to be the sixth end word. Uh, of the first stanza because that's the first one that gets repeated and it gets repeated back to back and in the Sistina of the Tramp Royal that word is die <laughs> so the end of the first stanza is and go observe in matters till they die first line of the next stanza what do it matter where or how we die so die is repeated right back to back there and that gets to the the theme here that really darkens the rest of the poem with that word. So that sixth end word, the, the word that ends the, the, the first stanza, uh, is going to help define the rest of the thing. Uh, but then each of the words become important as well as they are ongoing and repeated. They build complexity, especially on that word. Um, so Sistina of the Tramp Royal uh, is this interesting juxtaposition first of just Tramp Royal that he's a tramp which is the opposite of royal he's a you know prince and pauper sort of situation here but he's one person and here this tramp royal is talking about all the things that he's done he's he's traveled and worked all over the place uh he talks about how he has uh enjoyed all the different jobs that he've had that he's had uh, and now he's coming essentially to the end of his life. Uh, death is right there on his doorstep. Um, and 
that defines his existence then that uh, as as he's dying he's looking back over his life and saying that he had a good life which is not what a person from the outside looking in might think because someone looking in from the outside would see this guy who's a drifter hasn't settled down anywhere hasn't kept a job maybe for longer than a few months um in the uh, fifth stanza begins therefore from job to job i've moved along uh that he just drifts he takes a job after job um which is interesting there that uh along is just a uh restructuring of one of the words that ends the line which is long which is something that you can do in a sestina is as long as it basically is the same word uh it works <laughs> i was i was gonna call him out for that but i mean shakespeare yeah. violates iambic yeah. meter all the time in his sonnet so mm-hmm. if he can do that i think kipling can be forgiven for that particular sin i wanted to say something about that too that the sestina i've noticed is getting some popularity with some contemporary po- poets nowadays that I'm seeing a lot of sestinas cropping up all over the place, but with those sestinas, they do break the rules in uh, along those lines a little bit, but maybe even more so, where they might use a word that's a, a homophone uh, to one of those end words. Um, but we're not talking about them. <laughs> we're talking about this one. <laughs> um, it's interesting to me... Uh, so we can talk about some of the form here that the he's writing in a dialect that uh, gets across this this tramp idea, uh, this this sort of less than intelligent sort of that was, person. That was like yeah, I guess that's uh, two questions that I have yep. relate to that. Okay, um, and they're kind of they could be the same question in, in different aspects. Um, but they're ba- the, the, the framing question was what would someone like Kipling or any poet really like, why would you write a Sestina? Mm-hmm. Why would you use that form to express these words or to embody this character as opposed to any other form that is less likely to give you an aneurysm, even trying to comprehend. <laughs> um, sure. and one of the things, what feels like a sort of you know surface level reading of it of of an answer to that question here to me was the fact that like this is a character of potentially i don't know if i want to say lower intelligence but certainly like lesser education like maybe doesn't have that big a vocabulary so it's like the sestina almost lent itself to this character in that he has a limited set of words with which to express himself i think that's definitely part of it uh it it does sound like he's stuck repeating himself because he doesn't have other words. Uh, right, but at the same time, there's this modulation, yep. which is both in the form, in the way that the words shift around, mm-hmm. uh, but also in his thoughts. Like, yes. He and ends up using these words differently. That's something that comes out with a Sestina that I can't think of any Sestina that it wouldn't apply to, that you can take that poem as a meditation. Because of those rep- repeated words, you're meditating on these concepts within that sestina. And this is a guy who I think is meditating on 
his life, the meaning of his life as he's coming to death. And I think if you want to add a narrative sort of concept to this poem, he is telling his life story to an amanuensis. Uh, and that comes out, well, the very last lines is giving the imperative right. Uh, so right before I die, you liked it all. Uh, that, that's, that's essentially the epitaph that he wants for the story of his life, that he liked it all. But uh, then in the sixth stanza, he talks about books. He talks about writing. And it comes across, it comes across, I don't want to say ungenuine, but almost out of place. So if I add that narrative idea to it, I can picture him maybe lying on a deathbed, talking to this more educated person who's going to write his life story and knowing what that person is into, books, and trying to relate to him that way. And so he says, he uses books as a simile. It's like a book, I think, this blooming world, which you can read and care for just so long. But presently you feel that you will die unless you get the page you're reading done and turn another. Likely not so good, but what you're after is to turn them all. So he's, I just read that whole stanza because I think it's sort of a key one here. That it, in his understanding of his life, he couldn't stay put because to stay put is worse than death. It's death over and over again because a dead person isn't moving <laughs> so he's alive he's moving he's got to turn the page and so he relates it to something that his amanuensis could understand a book that you don't just sit looking at one page you have to turn the page to see where it goes next and that turning that sort of more intellectual educated idea of reading a book into something that's life or death is a paradigm or a communication here that i think kipling is interested in that these are two worlds that are colliding in importance the other thing that it makes me think of and this may or may not be relevant. I guess it is at least partially relevant. Uh, there's this like renaissance into the enlightenment idea of uh, Libris Mundi, the book of the mm -hmm. world, um, which was often used in like alchemical texts. And it was like personified as a book, but it was the idea of like the world as, as book, as, uh, you know, literature almost that, uh, um, often a scientist or an, an adept, a, even sometimes a philosopher uh, or someone who was both, knew how to read the world as a book in, this, in the same way that you'd read a book. And uh, to me, this feels a bit like a, a call out to that idea. Uh -huh. um, maybe, a, maybe a problematization or an elaboration upon that idea. The idea that someone like a tramp and someone like the writer of this poem, you know, could both could sort of swap places by understanding things in terms of, of books. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's 
a really interesting idea that that could come through there. And and when you think of Kipling's life and how he lived in India um for much of his life and would have experienced uh, I I I am not an expert on Kipling's life. I know some of the most basic things about him. But I can but like, imagine that some of one the of things those... that he would have collided with in yeah. that life in India and the, the British life in India, which is its own separate creature. Uh, well, one of those most basic things to know about Kipling is the fact that like yeah. he was born in India and he made it to England and he went all sorts of other places right. as a reporter and a, and a writer. Right, and, so, and that's the thing. Yeah. As a writer and observing the lives of all of these other people that he's encountering, I can imagine him coming across a tramp in yeah. the streets of India or wherever right. and thinking, I wonder what that person thinks about his life. I wonder what value that person thinks of his own life. Yeah. And trying to put that in words that are more communicable to the intelligentsia. Right. Uh, of British literature, <laughs> you know, even as he would have encountered some of the the religion of India in in some cases uh, with uh, Hinduism and um, um, Islam and and such like that, which there there are certain um, Christian phraseologies in here, but also there's a, an almost Hindu sense with that movement and that cycle mm, yeah. uh, and ongoing value to life as life and the work that you're putting in to that life is is sure. almost a, a a hindu value that i can i can see coming out in this yeah and uh i i was thinking of uh the book kim which i actually read last year sometime um i think it's the only kipling full kipling novel i've read i've never read the jungle book sure. um but Kim is credited with inventing the uh, spy novel. Um, yeah, it's it's a fascinating book, and certainly the um, uh, you know accusations that always get leveled at at Kipling regarding sort of a a rah rah white man's burden. Also, he wrote the poem "White Man's Burden," so there's that. But um, <laughs> yeah. you know this 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 rah rah British imperialism like. All of that is definitely in there, um, but at the same time, like the uh, uh, like the the um, milieu of the like it's set in British occupied India, and um, the milieu of it, it's like it felt, and I don't want to be flippant about this, but it felt like reading an alternate world fantasy novel at times in the sense that Kipling had to go out of his way to explain all of these different social structures because it was not just like you know even like it would have been in England at the time where there was a certain class hierarchy but it was that complicated by the class structure that India already had before the British occupied it combined with all of the ways that you know it it uh uh the British occupation and the Indian, you know, native sort of ruling class and, and other classes mesh together, as well as foreigners from all, all sorts of places. Um, and again, yeah, the, the Hindu cultures and the Islamic cultures and 
some of the other sects that are would were related to Hinduism and Islam, but weren't part of it. Like it's extremely complicated. And and Kipling did like in that book he shows that he was either very good at just making stuff up or that he definitely like you know, listen to and, and knew a lot of different people from different, you know, ethnicities and, and, uh, um, cultures and, 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 you know, situations and, and milieus and so forth. None of which is to defend him from having literally written the poem, The White Man's Burden. Right. But that's, it's, that's, it's, yeah. thinking of it it's in, fair. in informing, uh, you know, this, it, 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 seems in character like it it, absolutely you know this this almost just like in my mind it was just like kipling putting a slight poetic formalization to just like something a tramp on a train that he got talking to had told him sure and i have no idea if that's true but it certainly comes across that way yeah absolutely that's that's how it comes across that this is a conversation he had with somebody but it's also something that he relates to as being someone who maybe hasn't done but at least has observed in the words of this poem the different ways that different things are done right uh that's which that, that line itself i want to just mention that line itself there's already enough verbal repetition in this poem to have in one line a word repeated right. is intentional <laughs> right yeah i, I like, <laughs> yeah i thought about pointing that out too for sure um but that's that's a, a side issue here that just you know I so, think, uh, he sometimes with word... kipling's Sorry, he repeats yeah. a, the phrase and the word uh, general in the first time, oh. too. Speaking in general, yep. I have tried them all. Speaking in general, I have found them good. Which, again, is like more repetition in this already incredibly repetitive uh, right. genre. That we talked about that a little bit with, uh, with your poem, that uh, if you're in this form, you've got to triage your words. You've got to mm-hmm. select them with care. And it's... It, it, this one already has forced that in in a lot of ways and now you're selecting to repeat some of them that's right you know sometimes i i get the feeling with uh with this whole book of kipling's poems and i've read all of them at one point or another mm-hmm. um uh, there 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 are some duds <laughs> in here sure. uh there there's somewhere okay you just you jotted that down <laughs> really quick between meals or something and just this was a paycheck for you yeah that that one's that one's not great you didn't pay attention to to what <laughs> you're writing there very well but this one is i think one of his very high points sure that he's very good at his word choice at getting themes across and it's something that well you know it could be that tramp on a train that he talked to or it could be him Right. And that's that's sort of the point that this is a, a collision of of worlds. That this is something again universal, um, but it's it's a it's a universality that calls attention to itself, in this sense. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that I'm saying it's universal is what the poem <laughs> is saying. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Uh, yeah, uh, it's more general advice for life. Yeah, from experience. Right. Um, which is cool. I I think that's all I, I want to say about this this poem at this juncture. Unless you have anything else, I got nothing, man. Great. Uh, so, uh, gentle listener, thank you for joining us on this poetic journey. Let us know what you think uh, of these. 
poems and anything else that we discuss, uh, you can go to tapestryradio.org, go to the contact section there, uh, and let us know your thoughts. Or find us on Twitter, at Room with Scotch, or on Facebook in the Tapestry Radio Tap House. You can request to join that group, and we will let you in unless you have written the poem, The White Man's Burden. Um... <laughs> it will also do your homework. Uh, that's a, that's our ongoing promise. If you go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast, fill out the form towards, towards the top of the page uh, for your homework assignments in English literature classes. We will do what we can to uh, get that assignment done for you and record it. And we condone plagiarism, so you can just take that recording, uh, take that speech to text, hand that in to your teachers, and we will laugh as you are hauled off to plagiarism jail. Um, so if you like this podcast check out the other shows on the Tapster Radio Network like Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, Us Play Fiasco the Fiasco RPG Improv Podcast Freddy Goes to a Podcast where we read and discuss the Freddy the Pig series of children's books and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG Podcast rate and review us and all those podcasts that you love on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts uh, so that that helps others find those podcasts. Ethan, where can they find you? Uh, I just want to point out that I don't think you said the word podcast enough times, and I would like you to say it like four more times. Um, but the structure of my form doesn't allow me to say it any more times. Ooh, don't make me comment on the structure of your form. This is a family <laughs> podcast. Um, I am at Bjartlett on Twitter. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Uh, yeah. And I'm on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. And until next time, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if the form demands it. <laughs> Bye. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From our fancy to yours. yours.